The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you turn in your Bible now to Mark chapter 15. I'll begin in verse 21. The consistent New Testament message found in the four Gospels and in the Apostle Paul is a presentation of the historical facts that surround sequence of events that took place at the end of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And in the four gospel accounts, we find the same sequence, although each author brings in a little different nuance and perspective on the very same events. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 9 all provide a very careful treatment. These events that take place at the end of of the week of Passover and on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. Paul summarizes it well from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Well, looking back, I believe that the authors of the Apostles' Creed had an easy task in drafting this particular phrase because the pattern was so clearly set in the New Testament writings. Well, tonight we continue in our study of this important historic document as we gather the doctrines from the Apostles' Creed to try to understand the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who experienced the depths of misery and shame unto death that you and I might experience the heights of the glory of the very presence of God. Please follow as I read Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we should always be struck and astonished in fresh ways as we read this account this account that appears in all four of the Gospels of how your son was put to death in the most cruel and torturous way imaginable. We come tonight humbly, seeking insight and wisdom into the power of the cross in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be with us, teach us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The early morning hours of, on Easter 2008, a fishing vessel, seagoing vessel by the name of the Alaska Ranger, based out of Seattle, fell into grave danger off of the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. One of its rudders had been stripped off, leaving a gaping hole in which seawater flooded into the hull, eventually sinking the ship. The 47 crew members had to abandon ship before sunrise. Unfortunately, the raft with the ship could only hold 22 men, so the other 25 men, including the captain and first mate, had to jump into the freezing waters of the Bering Sea and grasping, trying to cling to whatever flotation devices they could find. Now, a Coast Guard helicopter crew, a crew of four men, 
named the Jayhawk, responded to the distress call. When they arrived at the scene, they saw the raft of 22 men and two dozen other men scattered out in small groups and individually for hundreds and hundreds of yards, bobbing up and down in 15-foot swells in 32-degree water. And these Coast Guard rescuers went to work with minus 24-degree wind chills and lowered their rescue swimmer, a man named O'Brien Hollow, down a cable in a long cage-like device, and one or two at a time were able to fish men, these sailors, out of these dangerous seas. These men obviously were in grave danger with 15-foot swells, the threat of drowning. With 32-degree waters, the, the rapidly approaching threat of hypothermia, not to mention the debris from the ship that was being tossed around and would cause a major head injury, if not a drowning. Well, as the Jayhawk began to fill its cabin with rescued men, a nearby fishing vessel named the Warrior also was able to come and fetch the men out of the floating raft. The crew of the Jayhawk worked feverishly, knowing that a matter of minutes could mean life and death for men threatened by death, by hypothermia in these suffocatingly cold waters. Well, unfortunately, the cabin of the Jayhawk could only store 12 men. And so they had to leave to go to another Coast Guard ship that was on its way to Cutter, yet it was 30 minutes away. Thankfully, the Cutter... The Coast Guard ship also had its own helicopter crew called the Dolphin and sent them rapidly off to fish out and call in another uh, group of men. But this helicopter crew was not equipped with the same cage-like device as the Jayhawk. It required its rescue swimmer, a man named Abram Heller, to jump out of his helicopter 20 feet below into the icy Black Sea. And there it was that Abram Heller began his heroics of attaching a long cable and hook-like apparatus to one man at a time to haul them up to safety. And in his first catch, he was able to rescue three men and then an additional two men who happened to be tangled up in fishing nets that were attached to the sinking ship, setting them free with just minutes to spare with a knife and even breaking one man's hand free that was frozen to the netting. This was one of the greatest and most heroic rescues in Coast Guard history. 42 of the 47 men were saved. Only five were lost at sea in this incredible two-hour feat of bravery and determination. What a gripping picture. The peril that these men faced is an illustration of the perilous condition all of the mass of humanity finds ourselves in, awash in a great sea of sin, subject to spiritual death and separate and cut off from God forever. Abram Heller's heroism 
is but a shadow of Jesus, the great fisher of men who submerged himself into the storming seas of a fallen humanity, who endured the cross, subjecting himself to an ocean of God's almighty wrath. The crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ demonstrates to us the depths of God's love for us and the great lengths to which the Son of God would go to rescue us and reconcile us to our God. Crucifixion was an invention of torture that had long existed before the time of Alexander the Great, intended to shame one's enemies and to prolong their suffering. Mark, it seems, followed the pattern of ancient historians who often provided little detail about the nature of crucifixion. It was considered impolite and grotesque to print such horrors for others to read. The Romans crucified their enemies. They are subject peoples and rebels at crossroads in order to maximize their exposure to oncoming traffic as a warning to those who would threaten or rise up against them. It was an intention to humiliate in a suppressed people, to keep them in submission to anyone who would challenge Rome's mighty grip on power. Now, Jesus had already suffered much shame and humiliation up to this point when he was crucified. He had been denied justice at a mock trial of the Sanhedrin. He had been rejected by his own people in favor of Barabbas, an insurrectionist. He had suffered a scourging on his back by way of a leather whip embedded with sharp and painful bone fragments. He was ridiculed by soldiers who saluted him and placed on his head a crown of thorns. Jesus suffered shame along the pathway to Golgotha, bearing his burden alone, having been abandoned by his disciples and comforted by just one man, a bystander, Simon, who was ordered to help him carry his cross. And it was there that Jesus set his course to Moriah, the very place that 2,000 years ago God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac, who was spared by a ram caught in the thicket, which Abraham had proclaimed, God himself will provide the lamb. And a wonderful fulfillment of, of geography and prophecy. God, there in that very same spot, chose to sacrifice the lamb of God. It would take away the sins of the world. Jesus would suffer shame and humiliation as soldiers would gamble for his one-piece garment. He would bear above his head an inscription announcing him as the king of the Jews, a mocking statement by the Roman authorities. He was executed between two criminals, fulfilling Isaiah 53, that he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus suffered shame as bystanders shouted insults. Rebuild the temple! 
Save yourself and come down. Prove to us that you are the Messiah, the mocking jeers of his own religious leaders. Jesus bore shame and suffered humiliation, even in preparation for suffering what he would endure on the cross. Now, mentioning crucifixion in the ancient Roman world would conjure up images for those who had witnessed such a scene. The most shameful treatment of human beings imaginable. A man stripped of his clothing and all of his dignity, fastened to a wooden pole and crossbeam, held there by either rope or nails sent through the upper wrist, lower portion of the arm, to fasten the man to that crossbeam. And there the man would labor in agony for hours and even days, his body weakened with fatigue, his muscles cramping in frustration, in agony. They are struggling to hoist the body in position for every effort to inhale and exhale. And the Roman soldiers apparently would even offer a footrest and even a, a little seat to not help the victim, but prolong the agony further so that it might last for days and not merely hours until the strength was given up and the man collapsed, unable to breathe any further. Jesus endured an unimaginable measure of physical suffering. And yet we are convinced that what Jesus experienced on the cross was more than physical suffering. There are many people in history who have suffered similar executions. The historian Josephus records that thousands of Jews were hung up on crosses as part of Rome's retaliation to the city of Jerusalem's resistance and rebellion in 70 AD when Rome finally crushed that rebellion and sacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, tearing down its temple. Beyond the physical suffering, We're convinced from Scripture that Jesus endured a kind of spiritual and relational alienation that was the sum total of the punishment required to satisfy the righteous wrath of God on all of his people throughout all of redemptive history. Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a echoing cry of the pain of eternal separation, that you and I would be bound to suffer without his sacrifice as a substitute in our place. Friend, you and I have in Jesus Christ a Savior who endured shame and suffering in our place so that we may not be shamed and suffer for all eternity under the condemning wrath of Almighty God. I think many of us would be proud to have Abram Heller for a son, this man of courage and bravery who rescued so many men out of the Bering Sea. Even if he had died to save others, we would have been proud and, uh, of a life well-lived. 
I understand that his training to be a rescue swimmer with the Coast Guard was not for the faint of heart. It weeded out the vast majority of those who could not endure the physical rigors that oftentimes could bring a man close to drowning. He had to pass many tests of skill, knowledge, and and discipline and ability. He knew what he was getting himself into as he would face possibly the day when he would, his train would be put to the test in the stormy waters of a rescue mission. But imagine if your son served in special forces with our military and was sent on a mission to rescue those who had been captured by an enemy. And in the process, he himself was captured by enemy terrorists who sought to mutilate his body who treated it shamefully, exposing his corpse on the internet, boasting in their savagery. In your flesh, you like I would want revenge. We would appeal to the U.S. military to, to make every effort to bomb them to smithereens, to retaliate for such brutality and disrespect to human life. Aren't you glad that that God, the Father, did not react in the same way? That his, his mission, sending Jesus to suffer and die in our place, was not an opportunity to condemn the world, but to save the world. He did not need to demonstrate a show of force like the Romans who cruelly humiliated their enemies. Nor needed the mighty power of the U.S. military to put down those who rebelled against him. No, at the cross of Christ, we see God's strength in weakness, sending his own son into the icy ocean of this world to endure the roaring swells of God's wrath, to fish men out of peril. We might not suffer eternal punishment. Friend, Jesus was crucified. For your sin, it was your sin and my sin that required the very crucifixion that our Lord Jesus suffered in our place. As it says in Isaiah, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Muslims and Jews and advocates of other religions reject the teaching that Jesus needed to be crucified, that he was crucified and died. In their mind, it betrays all honor and defies all human logic, but their reasoning betrays a worldly wisdom that is opposed to the very wisdom of God. For in God's redemptive plan, Jesus' death gained us access to God and also gets our attention in astonishment. Now, Mark records that bystanders standing around below the cross still had some hope that Elijah might show up, that Jesus might perform some miracle and put away this unthinkable thing that he would be crucified. Of course, their desires were futile, as were all other attempts to to prevent Jesus from suffering 
the very thing that he intended to endure on the behalf of humanity. The drama of the whole occasion is heightened as Mark records that a deep, deep darkness fell upon the land about noon and was kept for three hours. We're reminded of how in the ninth plague upon the Egyptians, God sent the plague of darkness, a darkness of mourning and preparation for the tenth plague. The Hebrews were instructed to, for each family to take a lamb, to sacrifice it and lay its blood across its door that they may be protected and spared from the wrath of the angel of death that was coming to wipe out the firstborn of the Egyptians. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the firstborn who was slain on our behalf. And to emphasize this point, God causes the very sun to mourn, the sun in the sky to become darkened in preparation for the death of his firstborn son. At the last cry of Jesus, and after his final breath, we read that the very temple curtain ripped in half from top to bottom, the king of glory, observing his son being crucified by wicked men, in his grief, tears his garment from top to bottom. This signifies the very end of the temple system. The priestly service was now over because the true temple was here. The one who was the full and final priest had finished his work, giving us access into the most holy place. That with that torn temple curtain, you and I may walk into the very presence of God, standing in the righteousness of the Christ who died in our place. The author of Hebrews puts it well when he says, We have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain. Well, having given us God's reaction to his son's death, Mark also records a human response of astonishment. God gets the attention of a certain Gentile centurion. This Roman soldier is astonished, expressing with great faith, truly this man was the son of God. This professional soldier had no doubt seen countless numbers of men die. But there was something about Jesus that stood out in his eyes. Perhaps it was the compassion he heard from his lips. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Perhaps it was the tender manner in which Jesus instructed John to care for his own mother. Was it the confident assurance that he offered the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise? Jesus cared for others to the very end. Not a man, even though in agony, not consumed with self-pity. Proud men may be determined to die well. However, Jesus crying out to his father with this very last breath, uttered something otherworldly, an expression of alienation that the condemned would suffer, separated from God, 
This centurion knew that most men would take a day or more to die. And yet the finality of Jesus' death, offering a great and loud cry with hardly any strength to offer, was something else completely. His was the cry of the abandoned, longing for restoration with the Father. Patrick Morley tells the story in his book, Man in the Mirror, of a father and his 12-year-old son and two other men who took a trip up to the Alaska mountains, finding their way into a secluded bay by a seaplane. They parked their vessel and waded in the waters and found a stream in which they began to fish and caught a whole mess of trout. Well, Returning later to their plane, they saw that it was grounded during low tide, and so they chose to spend the night there in the bay shore, feasted, and actually slept there on the plane. But in the morning, they awoke to find themselves adrift out in the bay. No problem. They cranked up the engine to fly out of there, but learned too late that one of the pontoons had been ripped open by a rock was punctured and filled with water. Consequently, the weight in the pontoon of this aircraft caused it to to fly in a circular motion out of control and eventually diving into those seawaters. The men quickly offered prayer and looked in futility to find flotation devices and vests as the plane gurgled and submerged, they had no other choice but to jump into those icy sea waters, finding whatever flotation devices they could grab hold of. It was not that far necessarily to swim to shore, and yet the riptide was very strong. The two other men were strong swimmers and made it to shore without too much trouble. However, the father and son were caught up in the riptide. And the two men looked with dismay as father and son holding each other were carried further and further out to sea. Later, when the Coast Guard rescued the two men, they ventured to guess that the father and son may have lived an hour, maybe a little longer. Being subject to hypothermia, the boy perhaps with a smaller body falling asleep in his father's arms. That father could have made it to shore, but to do so, he would have had to abandon his son. You know, Jesus can make it to heaven on his own power, but you and I cannot. Rather than abandon us to the stormy seas of God's wrath, he chose to suffer that wrath that we deserved. In our place, Jesus chose to join with us in our humanity, to bear our burden, and to be swept out in the ocean of God's wrath that he alone could face and take our place. Jesus truly meant it when he said he had come to seek and to save the lost. That when he said he had come to catch men, He followed through on his intentions. Has he got your attention 
yet. Charles Wesley says it well in his famous hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? A Roman centurion gave his attention to this God responding in faith. And even while the disciples of Jesus fled in despair and fear, there was one other follower who did not despair. As we move on in our text, we see that Mark, like the other gospel writers, provide careful treatment to something that in the ancient world was very, very important, respecting the body of the dead. And we see in the burial of Jesus great respect for the body and a very link to the resurrection. Not wanting to see Jesus' body left to exposure. To properly care for it on the day of preparation, a man named Joseph of Arimathea came forward. This man, who was a respected member of the Sanhedrin Council and apparently also a wealthy man, he came to take action where others did not. Apparently, Joseph was not a willing party to the Sanhedrin's will to execute Jesus. But here it says in our text that he took courage where Peter had failed, where the other disciples had fled. We might question, where were Jesus' own brothers? For it was the family's responsibility to take care of the body. It was dishonorable to leave a body hung up, especially before the Sabbath. And so Joseph came forward. He was no longer a secret disciple. The circumstances orchestrated by God forced him to go public with his faith. He would have to let his reputation go and not worry about what the other Sanhedrin Sadducees would think of him. He was now clearly associated with Jesus. And he would go before Pontius Pilate. And he would ask for the body as circumstances had required it. It was time to go public. Friends, there may be times that the providence of God requires you to go public with your faith. To be willing to endure scorn, shame, ridicule for Jesus' sake. Are you ready for such an occasion? Are you willing in a response to the one who sacrificed himself for you to sacrifice the things that you treasure for his sake, reputation, wealth, promotion, or other small advantages of this life that will not matter in the life to come. There are several details in this text that we could pursue. The linen shroud, the fresh-cut tomb, the rolled stone over the opening to the tomb— And all of these little details are precious because they help preserve the historical validity, the accuracy, the substantial case that resists all ridiculous attempts to explain away that somehow Jesus' body was lost or stolen or other foolish explanations that do not account for the marvelous truth that in a week's time, the very disciples who had fled in fear were now men with courage like lions, testifying not that Jesus was a great man, but that he had risen from the dead. 
And so we take from this burial account something very foundational. It sets up the very resurrection of Christ. Now, we will cover the topic of the resurrection. I believe Pastor DeBruin will take it in two weeks' time. But for our purposes tonight, let us consider what this means for us. What this means that that Jesus being crucified and dead was properly buried and rose again, it reminds us something very, very biblical, that the body matters, that the physical life matters to God. And it's just a simple reminder that we will be redeemed and dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. Unlike the ancient pagans, we do not disparage the body in favor of spiritual experiences. Unlike modern secularism that devalues human life and elevates the material things, we do recognize the value of the human person. Ours is a throwaway culture where almost everything is disposable. We toss away bottles and papers We retire our appliances, we trade up on our homes, our cars, and our computers. The view of marriage and children has suffered from a view of disposability. Ours is a culture of death where people are more concerned about endangered species and puppy mills than unborn children. The crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ remind us that we are not disposable. God makes a clear pronouncement that we matter to him. He who did not spare his only son, but freely offered him up in our place, declares to us that human life is precious and salvageable. God considered it worthwhile to restore that which had been spoiled in the beginning, in the sin of our first parents, to renew and remake us in the likeness of his son that we might be in a right and righteous relationship with him for all eternity. Back at the Bering Sea, we're not done with the story of Abram Heller. Having already saved five men out of the jaws of death at sea, he faced a problem. There was no room for him in the dolphin helicopter. He told the pilot to go on without him and leave him behind in a raft while he labored to find those three remaining men, not knowing whether he would be rescued, whether they would be able to get back and even find him in time. Thankfully, the other helicopter, the Jayhawk, had dropped off its catch, had refueled and returned to the scene an hour later and found there the raft with Abram Heller giving first aid to one of the three men he had saved out of the ocean. Human life is salvageable. Jesus, the great fisher of men, came to seek and to save the lost, being subject to the worst possible conditions imaginable, came into this world to redeem you and I. His is the greatest rescue mission in history. Friends, this Easter, may we celebrate the life, death, 
the one who was crucified, dead, and buried for you and I, who rose from the grave. May it move us with a rich and vibrant response of faith that we may follow in his likeness to be fishers of men, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is died and risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you considered it worthwhile to send your Son into a hostile and turbulent, terrible world, to seek and to save the lost, to rescue us, to be the great fisher of men, to fish us out of the depths of our own misery and sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a great and mighty Savior, our conquering King. We bless you and we praise you this night. Amen.